Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is the first podcast of 2023, and I'm delighted that we are starting out the new year with a conversation with Dr. Joe Lang. Dr. Lang is a behavior analyst who has over 40 years of experience in the experimental and applied analysis of behavior. And his particular focus is on the design of teaching and learning environments. I'm going to skip the reading of his very lengthy and impressive resume and say instead that in December we had a fascinating three-part conversation with Joe in which we talked about degrees of freedom. If you haven't yet listened to those episodes, I suggest that you begin with those before jumping into this episode. That means that for the rest of you, if you're listening to this podcast, you've already met Joe and you know how brilliant he is. At the end of the Degrees of Freedom conversation, Joe left us with a teaser of talking about contingency adduction. Dominique and I both felt like little children chasing after shiny baubles. Yes, please. Could we indulge in another afternoon's conversation? We want to learn more about contingency adduction. So Joe very graciously sat down with us again just after Christmas, and we recorded a just amazing, amazing conversation. I'm going to tell you in advance that we are going to be talking primarily about pigeons. So if you're wanting to hear, oh, I don't know, how to teach your horse to pick up his feet for cleaning or something like that, this particular episode probably won't satisfy that need. But if you want to be a better teacher for your horse, then this episode is very relevant. Joe is going to take us from one study to another, connecting the dots along the way. And he's going to end up taking us to a whole new level of appreciation of what animals are capable of. So as you listen to this episode, if you're wondering how all these experiments with pigeons relate to horses. That's one of the big takeaways. In this episode, Joe's going to start us out by defining what contingency adduction is. And he's then going to take us on a connect the dots journey that begins with some very clever experiments involving the mirror test and self-awareness in pigeons. You left us at the end of the Degrees of Freedom one with a wonderful tease that we were going to talk about contingency adduction. So since you gave us such a great intro last time to the Degrees of Freedom, is there a place that you want to start as we... Yeah. Uh, uh, Every time I hear, you know, uh, many years ago, uh, Paul and I, Andros and I, gave a talk at the Associate Behavior Analysis International Conference. 
And uh, Phil Heinlein was there, a well-known behavior analyst and so forth, who was also presenting with us and so forth. And we got up there and all I could think about uh, when I was up there, people were saying, why adduction? And I was saying, why not a chicken? And, <laughs> and, they, and they came directly from an old Marx Brothers movie about a viaduct yes. uh, uh, thing. I think the movie was Coconuts. And all I could think about was the Marx Brothers talking about that. So I, uh, every time I hear adduction, even though it's a very kind of a serious, interesting topic, it always cracks me up. I always think, why not a chicken? So the uh, so we'll talk today about why not a chicken, I guess, is uh, we'll, we'll talk about. Contingency adduction is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, it is a, we are all familiar with shaping and how we can take a repertoire that looks one way and shape it continually behavior of an organism uh, such that the organism is doing something entirely different at the end. And good shapers can start with little approximations and components and build those up and and move along. Uh, there was a great uh, a little demonstration with uh, Kay Lawrence about getting a dog to uh, touch a box with its paw. Yes. And uh, and if you try to reinforce immediately the box of the paw, the animal's nose is on it and all sorts of things. So she backs off and just reinforces paw lifts and so on and gets that going and shapes it over. So we see there's very creative shaping to get real, you know, some interesting behaviors. And then I have one from one I saw from you too. I'm going to talk about later. The other area which way which we looked at was what happens when you have behavior already established under a, one set of contingencies? Can it be recruited in a new situation to have a new function? Yeah. And by that means that does it meet a new contingency requirement, a different one that we've set up, and. What are the variables that govern these components coming together and then select it? Now, the moment of adduction is when the previously shaped component uh, is reinforced in its new requirement. That's the moment of adduction. Okay. Procedures used to get those components are, are a variety of procedures, and we'll talk about some of those. Uh, so... People often confuse adduction with the uh, building of the components. That's not necessarily true. What adduction is, is the selection of those components into a new form. Now, okay. inter interestingly enough, uh, there's a parallel in evolutionary theory. And that's called, and it was uh, by Gould and Verba, who, um, Stephen Jay Gould, the famous paleoanthropologist who passed away, um, who um, describe the, what happens in evolution when an adaptation, um, a, a feature that has adapted under one circumstance is recruited by another. And one of their uh, examples, of course, is the wing, right? Yes. Birds yes. were shaped to fly with a little, okay, I get a little further off the ground now and a little further, and maybe 2,000 years later, I'm a little further off the ground, and 8,000 years later, I'm another, you know, that didn't happen. You know, the wings obviously came about for different situations. And then one time, um, an animal was running up the side of a tree and flapped its little appendages and floated away like a chicken and it lived to reproduce. And, and you know, and the rest is flight history. Yeah. 
I'm, that's all made up. I don't know if that's actually what happened. And there's there's another one that I enjoy that in, insects, butterflies that have the very long proboscis. Right. But that evolved before there were flowers. Right. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it has the function of getting nectar from a flower, but it evolved before there were flowers that's that right. were producing. So that's a great, a, another exactly. example of that. And so it is recruited for a new function and yes. is maintained because of that new function. So this is basically what we found in contingency deduction, that there can be moments that bring repertoires together. And the requirement is that the current behaviors aren't meeting the contingency requirement. Yeah. So there is a certain amount of variability occurs and then a recombination or resequencing of repertoires that accidentally, if you will, meet that requirement. Now, you can engineer environments that make it less accidental. <laughs> in yeah. other words, we can put certain components in and arrange them in certain ways and handle certain barriers and deprivations and, and so forth, and which we'll talk about a little bit, to create some fairly complex behavior that looks mysterious. But when we look at it in the terms of of how these components interact and then how adduction works, we'll find that they're not so um, mysterious. The other preface that I'd make for all this is that when something combines into a new form, say component A and component B form component or composite AB, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, that AB composite can then be a component of yet another repertoire. And so we can get this building of complexity, and we see this a great deal in language development in children, where you get these components that are always uh, increasing in complexity and then selected and combined with new components and so forth. And so this accounts for some of the rapid changes we see in, in behavior. We, in, in our educational programs, we purposefully put components in set the situations where they combine, reinforce it, and then make them component compo components of a yet other composites. And so yes. we get what we call curriculum leaps and so forth. And so we can address that a little later if you'd like some concrete examples of that. But just to say that continuous deduction is the, is the selection of repertoires in one situation that were trained in a different situation and to meet a different requirement, right? Okay. So this, and this came out of work done that we were working with in the 1980s. We were also corresponding with and, and communicating uh, with uh, work out of uh, Harvard in, in Skinner's laboratory, Robert Epstein, for example. Right. Um, he actually attended Paul's dissertation defense on, oh. uh, his, in Chicago, just for the fun of it. Uh, if I recall correctly, I believe he was there. <laughs> the, the, maybe I just hallucinated him, but I believe he was there. And so I visited the lab there in, in Cambridge and saw what they're working on and so forth. And it was following similar areas. And so what I'm going to talk about today is some of the amazing things that pigeons were able to do that they have yet to demonstrate in crows and ravens. <laughs> <laughs> Is that be is that because people haven't tried? Well, yeah, or... of course. I mean, you could get it. Okay. Yeah, you, right. yeah, of course you can. 
But the because there's a difference between not having tried or trying and failing. Well, here's the, here's what it is: is that we assume that when we see certain patterns of behavior, they represent abilities rather than or like cognitive uh, abilities rather yeah, than training yeah. industries. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the point of doing it with the pigeons is these are training histories. And the fact that most of the crows and ravens, they, they put them in these situations after a long history out solving problems in the wild, given their type of crow and raven culture. Yes. Yes. And so you don't see their training histories. So mm. you make up stories about their cognitive abilities. Yeah, because yes. they're considered to be very intelligent in comparison to pigeon. Is this why you said that before? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm trying to defend pigeons here. <laughs> <laughs> pigeons, given the similar histories and put in the same situations, mm -hmm. pretty, pretty amazing behavior. You know, bringing that to what this always makes me think of, and then and then we'll get to the pigeons, because I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. Oh, no, but, that's fine. You know, in the, those intelligence tests of, well, which species of animals is more intelligent, the dog or the horse? And they will put a dog, they'll have a dog with a barrier in front of it and a bowl of food on the other side. And the dog goes around behind the barrier and gets the bowl of food. Oh, look at how smart the dog is. <laughs> and then they put a horse in front of the barrier and the horse doesn't go around the barrier. But the horse has no history <laughs> of going around barriers right. in that manner because it's been kept in a stall or a square paddock and never had the opportunity to develop that kind of behavior. Exactly. But given the history, the opportunity, you find that horses go around the barrier and get the food. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I, I could think of a simple procedure to, to get it to do it spontaneously without having to train them to do it. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about today. All the procedures that we're talking about today are ultimately, in their final form, untrained. They occur spontaneously. Yeah. And that's what makes this fun. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can train animals to do all kinds of stuff. And the, what I'm talking about today is that the, the terminal performances of what we're talking about are untrained. And so they just come together from the components, and then they can be reinforced after that, right? Yes. So the, uh, um, yeah, and it's true across a range of species, including humans, by the way, we, <laughs> we use, you know, contingency deduction was um, actually part of our program and how we engineered this for our reading program, Headsprout, in terms of teaching kids to read, in terms of putting together combinations of patterns and decoding. And decoding, by the way, is a, a very complex repertoire. If we finish talking about the pigeons, I'll tell you a little bit about the Okay. Or for decoding, but I want to stay with pigeons. Um, uh, and by the way, what I'm talking about today, it doesn't matter what kind of pigeon you're using. It can be a silver king, it can be a white carnal, it doesn't make any difference. So I know people attribute differences to species differences as well, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it, uh, many of these things are across the animals. And it, we're not necessarily limited to pigeons. The type of insight uh, experiments that we'll talk about uh, with pigeons uh, was also previously 25, 30 years previously, actually, maybe, yeah, around that, maybe, maybe longer, maybe 40 years, um, was done with apes, but was done in a very, very interesting way that uh, showed how uh, play behavior of apes, that if you put 
certain objects in the play environment of the ape, it could solve certain problems. Whereas if those objects weren't there, they didn't solve them late when they were adults. Uh -huh. And uh, and this was done at Yerkes by a guy by the name of uh, uh, Paul uh, Schiller. And okay. who unfortunately fell off a mountain, mountain climbing, and his work was truncated. <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> which was a sad thing because he was actually going to go to Harvard and work with Skinner. So it would have been an interesting. Uh, no. But before he could do that, he fell off a mountain. That was careless. But the, uh, yeah, it was pretty terrible. So, uh, and I'll talk more about Schiller's as, as we move along here with the apes too to uh, talk about that. But um, let's talk about some of the pigeons here and some of the interesting things. You know, one of the areas for a number of years used to distinguish people from animals and except for a couple, with a couple exceptions, was the notion of self-awareness. Yes. And how did they know self-awareness that children had self-awareness, for example, was called the mirror test. And in the mirror test, um, they would put a spot like on the head of a child right here, which they could not see. So it's on the forehead. So they don't know. Can't see it. Right. And they would then place them in front of a mirror. The child would look at the mirror, look at them, and then reach up and touch the spot. Mm. So they didn't reach to the mirror. Mm. Right? They didn't go to the mirror and touch the spot. They, they touched themselves which suggests that they have a concept of me or I and 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 an awareness of self. Well, you do this uh, with certain monkeys, they'll look at the mirror and they'll just keep running or they'll hit at the mirror and so forth. So obviously they don't have a sense of self, is was the contention. Conclusion, yes. Well, uh, the investigators at Harvard and uh, Epstein and, and others um, decided to look at what happens if we put the component repertoires in place? Not teach, see, not, this is what they did not teach. They did not teach, look in a mirror, see a spot, pick yourself where the spot is, right? They didn't right. teach that. What they did teach was using a mirror to locate spots, and I believe it was on the wall of the chambers. In other words, you'd see the mirror, you'd see the spot, and you'd, you'd see it, and you look around, and, oh, there it is over there, and go peck it. There it is, okay. there, go peck it, right? So the they they tell them what a mirror does, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right? You go see something, oh, it's over there, peck it. Oh, it's over there, peck it, right? Let's say that. Then they taught themselves, and I might be off a little bit on the procedures, but this is generally what was done, um, to peck a dot placed upon their body. So there's okay. a dot that they could see. Yes. You look down, see it? You reach down, peck, reinforced. So now you've got location of things in a mirror, right? And now pecking. So now what they do is, and by the way, when they did that, the mirror was, was covered. Mm -hmm. So when they pecked themselves, there was no mirror around. When they right. when they use the mirror, there was no dot on themselves, so those were totally separate. Then they put them in with the mirror there and the dot, but they added one feature, a little bib on the pigeon, so that if it moved its head down to look for the for the dot, 
it was covered. Mm-hmm. Couldn't see Couldn't it. Couldn't see it. So to test this, before the mirror was there, they put the bib on the animal, and the animal would look down and not see the dot and not peck. Mm-hmm. So they knew that the animal it was working to cover the dot because the animal wouldn't peck, right? They'd been trained to peck when the dot was there. Couldn't see the dot, so it didn't peck. Now they take the pigeon in front of the mirror. The pigeon looks at the mirror, looks down at itself. As it looks down, the bib covers the dot, but looks up in the mirror. The bib pulls up, right? See yeah. the dot? Pecks on the spot on the bib where the dot is. Mm. In other words, the only way it knew the dot was there was what it saw in the mirror. Yeah. It's a very clever, very clever design. Right. And so those components came together. And once it's done once and reinforced, then it's just another opera, right? It's adduced. That would be the point of adduction. Once that is reinforced, bingo, now you've got, you can now extend mirror use all over the place, right? Created quite a controversy when it came out because this mirror's... (laughs) Uh, yeah. uh, test was the you know the gold standard well the monkeys are you know they're, they're, they don't sit still you know they don't run around back and forth and so on and it's hard to get that component but you can do it uh, with a monkey but they're just like running all over the place typically and they don't sit long enough and take a look and so on so you have to do some procedure but you can do the same with a monkey or any other probably just about any other creature uh, that you wanted to show its self-awareness and since human had these repertoires, yeah. So that it, it, these other animals was didn't not, have a history of. It was not. Do they have the cognitive ability? But more, a. Do we know how to ask the right questions? Right, and, and give set them the right up, repertoires so they can answer them. And to give them the right repertoires in order to answer. Right. Yes. So that was that was in in an interesting area. Another one that I liked was they also in the Harvard group. And I'll get to what we did at the end of this because it's a little more complicated to understand. They used a, they taught a uh, pigeon they, uh, to directionally push a little hexagonal box. Little yes. box. And it wasn't very tall, but it was big enough so the pigeon could get it and push it around. Now, what they did is they taught it to push to a green dot on the floor of the cage. And they had several procedures. They first used a little wire. So the pigeon had, to, when it pecked, it always went direction to the wire and followed the wire. Then they removed the wire, put the dot close by the pigeon peck, and then they moved it around the cage. And wherever the dot was, the, the pigeon would peck the little box in direction of the green dot. Yep. Then take that out and they put a little metal plate in a little metal plate. And what they did is they put a plexiglass wall up and under the wall was a little area uh, that separated from the floor. And they put the plexiglass plate about 10 centimeters inside. So the pigeon had to stretch underneath the wall to get to the plate and peck it. Okay. So they taught it to peck the plate and they moved it slightly out of its reach, out of its reach, out of its reach until it really had to stretch underneath this plexiglass wall to peck this plate. And the pigeon did that, of course. You know. So it's like trying to reach something that's fallen down Correct. behind your couch where you, you reach, you reach, you reach, and and, right. and at some point it's just beyond what your fingertips can, right. can manage. So here they put it well, they put it so it could just reach it. 
So yeah. each time it went in there, it, it, it pecked the plate and got it. All right. So now they're doing this and they now they put the box in with the bird. And any pecks to the box now are no not reinforced. The green dot is not there. Okay. So the bird will go over and peck the box once in a while and so on and so on. But it's never reinforced. So after a number of trials, the bird ignores the box. And it just, when it sees the plate, it runs over, it does it. Once in a while, they'll put the box in with the, with the green dot and it'll do that. But when it's there with the plate, no green dot, there's no pecks for the box. Okay. So in, in one condition, it's getting peck, it's getting reinforced for pecking the metal plate. Right. The the box is present in the environment, but it's just it's and, just essentially there as a distraction. Right. It's not something that gets reinforced if no. they interact with no. it. No, not as long, not when the plate's there. Under another condition, the plate is not there, but the green dot is, right. and that that in in that condition. If the pigeon interacts with the box, it gets reinforced if it, if it, when it pushes it towards the green light. And in that condition, the plexiglass wall is not there either. And the, okay, so very clear right. environmental cues. Right. So now, the experimenters take <laughs> and put that metal plate beyond the reach of the pigeon under the wall. Okay. And what does the pigeon do? Well, first off, he gets really angry. It's frustrated. <laughs> yes. He yes. tries to reach and, oh, you know, just like you might. Oh, I can't. Yep. I can't. Yep. That. Yep. Can't so, reach. I can't reach my phone that I dropped behind the couch. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And the uh, uh, and so you know, it gets a little, and then it starts going all over the place, and it gets that, and then finally, it goes over to that little box that box. always pushed to the green dot, but there's no green dot. There's no green dot on it. And starts pushing, and it pushes it under the wall, coming in contact with the plate and pecks the box. Yeah. In, in essence, what it's done is use a tool. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what you get is spontaneous use of tools in the pigeon. That's just so cool. Without yes. training, right? Without training. Without yes. training. They were never trained to press, push under that wall. They were never trained to touch a plate ever, right? And so, uh, and one could could do variations on that, but once you've you've shown it, you've shown it and so forth. Yeah. Well, tool use in the pigeon can be, <laughs> can yeah. be just uh, achieved. And so again, it's not the ability of the pigeon to use tools. It's the conditions under which tool use is made likely in mm -hmm. certain histories, they'll use tools, right? Right. And so this is uh, 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 another instance where we can say, well, you know, uh, certain birds and so on will use tools. Well, so will a pigeon, given the right history. So again, it's not the ability of the bird. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So there's another series of experiments done there, where they took a banana. <laughs> yes. Right? And you know the old banana in the box, you know, with the colors chimps? Yes. Where, where you put a banana out of reach, and the 
and the chimp gets a box and pushes it under the banana and jumps up on the box and grabs a banana. And they said, oh, this is a problem solving by these chimps. This shows advanced problem solving and insight. They saw yes. what was needed and required. So what did these investigators do? They taught him to press a box to a point on the floor, much like before. Yep. This is a pigeon that's pigeon that they're time. doing this. Yes. They taught the pigeon to jump on the box. Right? Yes. Separately. So separately taught it to jump on the box. Separately taught it to press, but never did they teach it to push and jump. These were all separate. Yes. Jump on the box in one condition, push the box in another. And then they taught the pigeon to peck a toy banana <laughs> that was hung from the ceiling. So the pigeon would go over and peck a toy banana. One day the pigeon comes in and the toy ban banana is there, but it's now out of reach. And the pigeon, what this does is tries to jump up and the cage is such that he can't really fly up, can't use his wings to get up there. So it jumps up, tries to reach this banana, he can't reach it, right? This is an unhappy pigeon again. Yes. What's the pigeon do? He walks around for a while. He goes over and he starts pushing the box. And he pushes the box. And about halfway to the pigeon, he jumps up on the box and he looks up at the at the banana, jumps down off the box, pushes it some more, finally gets the box under the banana, jumps on the box and pecks the banana. This pigeon was never trained to do any of that. It never trained to press toward, toward the banana. It was never trained to, to uh, push and then jump. Right? These were all right. separate repertoires. That's right. The banana's out of reach. And so what's happening is, of course, is what they called automatic chaining, meaning that the distance toward the dot on the floor, from the pigeon's point of view, in other words, when it's pushing toward the dot on the floor during the training, the pigeon has to push and then adjust based upon where the dot is. So it has to push, look, push, look, getting closer and closer and closer to the terminal object, which will then be reinforced. Right? Right. Now, when the banana is out of place and, and so on, historically reinforced behaviors, box pushing, which led eventually to reinforcement toward target, right, is reappears. This behavior then, the pigeon looks up and adjusts, and you can see it do it. It You actually, in the videos of this, which are really cool to see, yeah, the pigeon looks at the box, looks at the banana, looks box at the back. You can see it going back and forth. It's head moving. <laughs> and then you see it push the box. Yep. Right? And then jumps up on the top of the box, and it happens to be closer. And it's basically eye level with the, with the banana now. So now it jumps down and it's using this adjusting, getting closer to love. And so what you see is these little steps. Each one is reinforced by closer approximation automatically. In other words, the experimenter isn't doing it, right? Just the right. approximation of the banana is related to the box is doing it. And so there's a little mini adductions going on. In other words, the box is now meeting a new requirement, which is close proximity to the banana rather than what it was meant before. So you've got these little instances of adduction occurring that are actually, looks like it's shaping the box pushing automatically. Yeah, very right? cool. And so they jump up on the box and they peck the banana. And, and so insight in the pigeon. 
Now, what Schiller did with chimps was he gave them certain objects uh, when they were young chimps and then put put certain tasks with objects like sticks and stone that you put together and then you reach out and get the banana outside the cage and draw it in. Well, given certain things to play with when they were younger and manipulations, they would do that. In other words, they had the repertoires. Mm-hmm. When these were out of play, uh, uh, now to then, they give them the objects. They engaged in behaviors that combine those repertoires that they had in, in play behavior to actually meet them. And these are species typical play behaviors that just were amounted to also the uh, that occurred in the presence of these objects. Right. So what he showed was that you could have species typical behavior be components mm-hmm. of the problem solving. Right. So he okay. didn't train them to play, right? Right. <laughs> and so forth and they didn't train him how to play he just right. created the opportunity to play with yeah. you know to play with and so on and so it's a very very um but if the if we we go back to the pigeon if it did not have the components in the repertoire it would not solve the problem no and neither would a person mm-hmm. and that's the point <laughs> in other words people need the components in their repertoires as well all right and the uh, um, and I'll I'll come back to that to what separates people a little bit from this in a, in a minute. The people do do have one thing that these animals don't have going for us. <laughs> we get paid for our insights. <laughs> that's one thing, <laughs> but that's not the one I was referring to. But it just occurred to me that that's a that's a major difference. But the uh, um, but if you put the components in place, then you can get this. Now, mm-hmm. same is true of people. You know, if you don't have a certain repertoire in place, you're not going to solve the problem. Right. Right. So this is uh, uh, this is true across species. So a final one of this genre that I'll describe, there was an experiment called the Jack and Jill experiment, where one there were two pigeons involved in this one. And one pigeon um, was on one side of a, a chamber with a plexiglass wall so they could see the other one. Right. And they could see one another. And um, I'll tell you what the terminal repertoire is, and then we'll tell you how it's trained in a minute here. So in this one was pretty straightforward. One pigeon was trained as a speaker role, and the other is a listener role. And they weren't trained in both roles initially. They just one was a speaker, one was a listener. So one pigeon would there was an apparatus on the on the one side, and the and the Pigeons name were Jack and Jill, and I don't remember which one was which. Speaker, listener, maybe they had both roles in it. Yeah, you know, Jack and Jill. Yeah, I think but, Jack started uh, out as the speaker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and so the um, one of the pigeons, let's let's say Jill, uh, goes up and says, "What color?" Oh, Jack. Didn't. Well, never mind. It doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Jill goes up and says, "What color?" Right. Well, that light goes on. And Jack then sees what color sticks his head in a little box that has a curtain on it. And inside that box are three keys, the colored keys that light up. Right? Red, green, or yellow. Okay. Red, green, or yellow. So Jack looks at it, sees red, green, or yellow, comes out and pecks. The letters, red, green, and yellow, imprinted on 
three other keys. And so it lights up. It's the letter that's there, not the color. So if he goes under the curtain and the red light is on, he comes out and he pecks the key that has an R on it. R on it, right. Okay. Then it lights up. Jill then says, thank you. <laughs> pecks and that's, the button a, that's, that's a key that, that, that's another yeah. key that she pecks. Another key that she has that says thank you on it. And that operates a food hopper. So that's where his reinforcement comes from. When she says thank you, he gets fed for the okay. doing that. So the right. so far we have Jill sees the what color she pecks that that lights up uh, on the other side the what right. color and Jack goes under the curtain sees the red light is on right. comes back out pecks the the uh, symbol the letter R and when that lights up then Jill uh, goes over and pecks the thank you at which point the food hopper on Jack's side. Operates. operates right so jack has now been reinforced right and now jill looks at the r and pecks the color red on her array so she's got red a light with red green and yellow on her in front of her and so now she has to pick the color corresponding to the letter yes and so when she sees the r she's she pecks the red and then her food op oper operates oh. if she the right color now, these birds would do this for like 80, 90-minute sessions. They just keep going. All right? Why not? It's paying off. You're getting fed, yep. right? Being, yep. being and, and so forth. So they were communicating with one another. Mm -hmm. right? And so and this was symbolic communication. Yes. Because you're using letters for to represent colors. Colors represent letters. And the color stands for the number. I mean, you could put all kinds of cognitive spin on this all you wanted to. But they train them separately as speakers and listeners and so on. So they decided, well, what would happen if we train them in both roles? And what was interesting is that when the speaker bird was trained as a listener, it learned no faster than training as a listener without being a speaker. In other words, being a speaker or listener contributed nothing to learning the new repertoire. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. They were totally separate. Watching the other bird had no effect on their history. So the so they both learned it. So what they do now is they took the plexiglass wall out. And so the bird can go what color? And there's what now they color? take the they've taken the plexiglass out, and there's right. only one bird in the chamber. Only one bird now. It's okay. turning to both rolls. So it goes what color, walks over, sticks his head into the curtain, sees the color. All right, comes out initially, like say, pecks green, say green was underneath, pecks a G, and then goes over and pecks the green light. Light. Well, eventually, it stops pecking the letters. Because why, why, why do I need to do that step? Right? So it looks underneath, sees the color, walks over and pecks the corresponding color and receives the food, right? So the thank you drops out. If you peck it, it still lights up, but there's no food delivered for it. So they 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 quit. The, they quit saying thank you to itself. Quit saying thank you to themselves, and they quit picking the letter keys. And so, in essence, um, you could 
remove the curtains. You know, I mean, the curtain is superfluous now as well, right? So you can just stick it your head in there, see the color, walk over and match the color. Well, now they put a delay. So you look inside, see what color, and then those go out. And then there's a delay before the other colors that you have to match to come on. And what happens when they did that? A couple times of doing that, what reoccurred? Pecking the letter key. That's so now if you look inside and it's yellow and there's a delay, you peck the yellow, you wander around until the, your keys come on, then they go back and look at which one's lit up. <laughs> and in other words, they left themselves a memorandum. I just think that they actually yeah. know. Yeah. And what's fascinating about that is that nobody trained them to do that. It yeah. just emerged. Right? In that the delay was there. Oh, well, historically, when I'm not being re when not no reinforcement is trained to put, I I peck these keys. Now you peck the key, it stays on. Now when the light comes on and the key is there, I can look back and do the match, which is also in my history. So we can see historically how these things are occurring. Yeah. But if we didn't understand how the, the resurgence and so on worked, and that historically reinforced patterns reoccur, then they get locked into the thing and induced for their new role, right? Now it's having a new role. Now, what was fascinating is they reduce the temporal interval and it would go away. It wouldn't leave themselves a note. Mm -hmm. They increase the interval, and they leave themselves a note, showing that it was in actuality a memorandum. Wow. So the uh, uh, and so here is really complex pigeon behavior, going beyond what the world thought uh, pigeons were actually capable of doing. All of these experiments came to show that the relation between behavioral components and then the kind of selective environments that could reinforce these patterns as they're emerging, maintain their behavior. So this is pretty, pretty astounding stuff. Pretty amazing stuff. So what we're seeing is the beginning of a type of symbolic behavior. Yes. If this were, you know, if this were seen in the wild, you know, I don't think any crows or ravens have been known to leave memoranda, but maybe. <laughs> and they, uh, um, you know, are engaged in self-awareness, maybe. But we know they could easily yeah. with the right procedures. Hmm. So we began in our laboratory uh, looking at some other relations. And we're looking at what happens, right, when certain behaviors are made likely by changes in schedules of reinforcement. Joe is about to shift gears to describe another set of experiments, so this is a good place to stop. We have a list of the articles that Joe talks about in the show notes. You'll find them at equosity.com. And if you want to learn even more, particularly about the nonlinear analysis, 
Joe has a new book out, Nonlinear Contingency Analysis, Going Beyond Cognition and Behavior in Clinical Practice. It's easy to find on the internet and absolutely well worth tracking down. So next week, we'll begin with what happens to behavior when you change schedules of reinforcement. And until then, Happy New Year, everyone. Train well and have fun with your horses. <laughs>